It's 1955, and something incredible was about to happen in the headquarters of Sony. In the last two years, Sony had obtained a license to use transistors from Bell Labs in the United States. A transistor is the building block of a CPU. It allows binary communication. Modern-day CPUs have miniaturized the transistor that allows for over a billion transistors on a single CPU. While Bell Labs didn't know that they had invented the fundamental building block to our modern-day computers, what they did know is that their first transistors don't have nearly enough power for what Sony wanted to do with it. When Morita, Sony's co-founder, had met Bell Labs, they wanted to use transistors in consumer products. But back then, the electrical output of a transistor was so low it couldn't possibly handle the full range of audio. Bell Labs had also tried on numerous occasions to increase the output, and it was widely known that if Bell Labs couldn't do it, no one could. By the way, we're talking about the Bell in Alexander Graham Bell. Yes, Bell Labs was founded by the founder of the telephone. Either way, Sony decided to try it. What's there to lose? They would at worst be the equivalent to Bell Labs. By this time, over a third of their labor force were engineers, which allowed Sony to pursue multiple paths of research, and one particular one stood out. It's called phosphorus doping, where you add small amounts of phosphorus to enhance the conductivity of the material. Of course, it's significantly more complex. In fact, Bell Labs had tried this themselves, but shelved the idea prematurely. It took a year of iterative doping before Bell Labs received a call from Sony. Hey, Bell Labs! We did it. We could increase the transistor's output through phosphorus doping. Wow, that's incredible. What are you planning to use it for? Radios. This brings us back to 1955. Where the research team was presenting to both Morita and Ibuka their first transistor radio titled TR55. It was a technological breakthrough, but also a massive gamble. A few months before, an American company called Regency had beaten them to the punch by launching their own transistor radio. Being first to market meant that Sony could only be going after scraps because the consumer electronics world moves very quickly. Ibuka and team would have nearly given up until they realized Regency wasn't putting any effort to market their product. Now this became dangerous. Either Regency didn't realize the power of their invention, or they realized that transistor radios could never sell. Sony had to take a bet, and for better or worse, they would go all in on innovation, like they always did. The research team was nervous. But they've tested it many times, just not in front of Morita and Ibuka. Before we begin the test, Ibuka was addressing the engineers. If we switch it on, and it catches the radio waves, we would have made history. We would become the first in Japan with the transistor radio, and the second in the world to do so under our own terms. That's right. Morita was drumming up the crowd. In fact, we intend for this product to be the first in a series of innovations that will carry our new name, Sony. Everyone was excited. All that's left is to switch it on. 
Well, here goes nothing. From 1UP Media, this is Empires, episode 3 of a four-part series, Made in Japan. In 1955, Sony's test for the TR-55 was a resounding success, and Morita who took up the business mantle for Sony brought the radio into New York City. The Morita that was in New York is a very different Morita who started the company with Ibuka back in 1946. Before he was a 15th generation sake brewer who was destined to run his family business. But come 1946, he took a very different path. And by all accounts, his father was very understanding, allowing Morita to leave the family business and establish Tokyo Telecommunications Engineering Corporation with Ibuka. The pair would have many early wins, most of all snagging a government contract to produce audio equipment. However, things started turning for the worst. They both worked and were excited as engineers, which meant that no one was thoughtfully thinking about how each product could be marketed. Drunk off their excitement, they hastily produced 50 very expensive tape recorders without realizing that no one could afford them. By chance, Morita had entered an antique shop and learnt that by finding the right target audience, they could have a shot at selling the product. True enough, they did, and Morita realized that he had the foundational understanding to become the merchandiser of the company. Tokyo Telecommunications Engineering Corporations was evolving to become a real company, but so was Japan. As globalization took root, the pair realized a name like theirs had to change or no one would be able to pronounce their company name. Taking inspiration from Sunny, who was used locally amongst Japanese to call a young boy, and the word Sonus, which meant sound, the pair settled on the name Sony and Sony was going to go global like Japan, starting with the TR-55 in New York City. Morita was no stranger to the Big Apple. He had been here before. The loud, abrasive honking of cars is only beaten by the yelling of men along the street. It was supposed to be the land of opportunity, and Morita was excited to find some inside Bulova. In our modern day, Bulova only produces premium watches, but previously, it had dabbled in radio production. Akio, what a pleasure to meet you. Your TR-55 are incredible. Thank you. We're very proud to be the first transistor radio in Japan. I'm glad you see the innovation. Look, 
We spoke about this earlier, and I think it's crazy so few people see the innovation like we do. It's obviously going to be a hit. Marita was cautious. It was well familiar that in the West, people tend to speak more than the deal itself. Thank you. I hate to think about this early, but do you think Bulova would want to purchase our radio? Of course. If not, why are we here? We want a hundred thousand units. Morita couldn't believe it. A hundred thousand units was worth many times the total capacity of Sony. Immediately, Morita wanted to talk details, and much to his surprise, so did the Bulova's representative. Look, Akio, we'll do whatever you want. We only have one condition. It's a simple one. Everyone does this for us all the time. Sure. What is it? We want to put the brand Bulova instead of Sony. Morita's stomach sank. He knew what this meant. Bulova was intending to treat Sony as an OEM, an original equipment maker. An original equipment maker usually is a factory-run business that produces mass quantities of product A with branding B's logo. Most OEMs are treated as commodities, like your plastic chairs. To Marita, the TR55 was no commodity. It was a leap in innovation, and Sony was the one that discovered it. Oh, oh! Actually, we aren't an OEM manufacturer. I was thinking we could use your retail outlets instead. The Bulova representative's chummy attitude shifted. Akio. You're kidding. Take the deal, make some money, and you can launch another product. No, I'm sorry. We just don't do that. Is there any way around this? <sighs> Now, Akio, I'll cut to the chase. You know us. We're Bulova. You have actually heard of us. Sony? Now, no one knows about that. The Bulova representative placed his hand on Marita's shoulder. Listen to me. Building a brand isn't easy. Our company took 50 years to get where we are today. Just take advantage of our brand name, make some money, and launch your next product. Morita knew he was young, and maybe then he might have thought himself crazy for what he was about to say next. I agree. We are you 50 years ago. You might not think much of us today. But we're taking the first step for the next fifty years of my company. I promise you that our name will be just as famous as your company name in the future. In all of Akio Morita's interviews and biographies, he would call this decision the single best decision in his life. At the end of his trip, Morita actually did secure a number of orders, but it was nothing compared to what they were about to release next. By the end of 1957, Sony had a lot more stability, mostly from their own domestic market. A year ago, they had put up their first billboard, and at the beginning of this year, they fully rebranded as Sony Corporation. They also invented the TR63, the world's first pocketable radio, an oddity for its time. While it was pocketable, it wasn't nearly as pocketable as they thought. In order to fit all the necessary parts. 
it became 11 cm or 4.5 inches high. In order to market it as pocketable, they had their sales staff re-sew all their pockets with larger ones to fit the marketing strategy. In Japan, it was exploding, largely because the Japanese were so obsessed about miniaturization. Most Japanese products, then, were notable for compactness. They could fold their fans or roll their scrolls of art. But in America, a different trend and bet was emerging. Suburbanization was in full swing, and people were migrating away from the cities into larger housings. Each room would have significantly more space and could allow large consumer products. At the time, the American consumer electronics had bet that quality is the most important aspect, not portability, because houses will have more space. The logic was sound, but American individualism and normalization of subculture meant that even siblings were growing up with vastly different tastes. And the TR-63 was the first truly personal device, where individuals in the household could enjoy their own music freely. Its release was an instant success in 1957, but it would only go down in history a year later. It was early January 1958, and the Del Monico International Warehouse, an official distributor for Sony's radios, were under attack. At dusk, a crew accessed the rooftop of the warehouse by climbing on a freight car beside the garage. They then scurried in via the second floor window. Their plan was meticulous and well thought out. They loaded as many cartons of TR-63 as they could onto wooden pallets, then broke through four locks of four rooms lying between them and the freight elevator to the ground-level loading bay. If all goes well, they would have a getaway truck waiting. Cumulatively, the thieves managed to load 400 cartons worth $160,000 and escape without a trace. On January 24, 1958, the New York Times broke the news titled, 4,000 Tiny Radios Stolen in Queens. But what was peculiar was that Del Monico International Warehouse didn't just house TR-63s, they also housed as many as 20 other radio brands, all of which were untouched. Instantly, a flurry of newspaper articles and radio reports blasted all across the country emphasizing that Sony's TR-63 are coveted items. Sony radios are so amazing that they could be stolen from you. Across the next few years, Sony would sell different radio electronics that flew off the shelves. The next generation of personal radio, the TR-610, and the personal tape recorder, the Pressman, both sold over 500,000 units each. It even made headlines again but this time for all the right reasons, when the TC-50, the world's lightest tape recorder, was used on Apollo 10, all the way up on the moon. By the end of the late 1960s, Sony ventured meaningfully into the television space with the KV-1310, a color TV called the Trinitron, 
Sony's own TV system that had twice the brightness of regular TVs. Eventually, the Trinitron became so advanced that in 1972, Sony won an Emmy for the development of the Trinitron. For context, it was the first time an Emmy had been given to a product. But while Sony had great success, all of it will pale in comparison once again to its audio division that was about to birth a global phenomenon. It's 1979, and Sony was starting to look more like a conglomerate. It had established its Sony Music Division through a joint venture with CBS Records in 1966, and it's fast becoming a cash cow. The division is spearheaded by Morita's prodigy, Noria Oga, who Morita had met years ago when Oga reviewed Sony's products critically. To Morita, he felt such precious feedback was worth paying for and hired him instantly. Noria Oga would eventually become the president and chairman of Sony Corporation. While Sony Music was doing great, all eyes were on the audio division because Morita had just birthed a nightmare to his engineering team. To be fair, it started from Ibuka, who came into Morita's office visibly upset. Morita-san, I'm in distress, but I see an opportunity here. He placed a portable radio and headphones on Morita's table. Back in the day, a headphone weighed about 400 grams, or close to one pound. For context, that's heavier than a standard bicycle helmet weight today. See, I love listening to music, but I'll be disturbing people all day if I play my radio out loud. But this... He gestured to the headphone. This is too heavy for long hours of listening. Ibuka was right. Truthfully, few people used headphones in the 1970s. Only telegraphy operators, submarine sonar experts, or pilots. Most only wore it as a necessity, not for relaxation. For Morita, this triggered an exciting opportunity. By 1979, Akio Morita was very familiar with American culture, as he had to set up the Sony America headquarters. Unlike other Japanese who would fly over to America often, he uprooted his family and stayed in America for over 10 years. During his journey, he noticed an interesting trend that some younger folks were walking around with radio boomboxes. To him, he saw that people wanted to take their music with them. For those who were brave enough, they would carry the boombox. But for others, they had no option. To Marita, this represented a sizable market. Ibuka, I think we're on to something. Let's call the engineering team. Morita requested the team to strip out the pressman, a device traditionally used to record audio and replace it with a stereo amplifier. He also asked for a lightweight headphone to pair with it. It sounds easy in theory, until Morita added a caveat. I want to retail it for no more than 30,000 yen. Morita-san, I mean no disrespect, but the pressman itself, the one that we're retrofitting to become this new device, costs 49,000 yen. Yes, I'm aware. We'll make a loss, Morita-san. No, we won't. We won't if we sell them in large quantities. Morita-san, I understand what you mean. We'll try first, but depending on how we play it, I'm worried the number needed could be in the hundreds of thousands. You would think that Akio Morita, 
the founder of Sony, within a hierarchical Japanese culture, would meet no resistance. But throughout the conception of the Walkman, similar conversations would take place. Morita-san, I mean no disrespect, but I don't think our sales team can sell it. Morita-san, I'm not sure if any customer wanted something like this. Morita-san, I understand what you mean, but we'll need to sell a lot. Stop. I understand where everyone is coming from. Let's do this. If we don't sell 100,000 pieces by the end of this year, I will resign my chairmanship of this company. Does this work? The Walkman now had real stakes attached to it. Akio Morita's job was on the line for this. By the start of spring, the first version was shared with Morita with headphones that weighed only 50 grams. After testing, he requested two changes. The first was another output slot so his wife could listen to the music, and the second was to include a big orange button that allowed the two listeners to talk to each other if they needed to. They also had to agree on a name. And eventually, the Walkman was accepted, simply because their past invention was named the Pressman. To ensure success, Morita suggested an ingenious marketing strategy inspired by his own testing of the product. He realized that it wasn't anything interesting unless you actually tried it. On launch day, he requested fashionable young couples to stroll around Tokyo's Ginza neighborhood, Japan's equivalent of Orchard Road in Singapore, or the Champs-Élysées in Paris. These couples would be wearing the Walkman and allow passerbys to try on their headphones if curious. Morita's bet of 100,000 units sold meant on average they had to sell over 16,000 units a month. Within the first two months, upwards of 50,000 were sold. The momentum was so great that manufacturing runs had to double, then triple, month on month rapidly. In a span of the next seven years, the Walkman series would continue to sell 20 million units, the equivalent of around 240,000 units per month, or more than 14 times the amount that Morita bet his job on. Through this incident, Morita also developed the bias against consumer research. He didn't think asking a consumer would have led to the creation of the Walkman. This mindset would eventually be reiterated and made popular in the future by Steve Jobs. By the 1980s, Sony began shaping up to look a lot like the Sony we know today. A year earlier, Akio Morita established Sony Life, a joint venture between Prudential and Sony to bring life insurance into Japan. Meanwhile, Oga, who was leading the music division, had collaborated with Philips to work on a new digital format. Sony was advanced in pulse modulation while Philips in fine laser technology. Their joint partnership birthed the compact disc, or CD, which became the dominant format in 1986. It was a mountain of cash for both companies who co-shared royalties from all hardware and CDs. Sony's Films division was also established during this time. In the 1970s through to the 80s, there was a trend for Japanese companies to acquire companies because the yen appreciated against the dollar. This meant that the Japanese could buy American companies at a discount. 
But while it was more common, no one expected Sony to spend six billion buying over Columbia Pictures Entertainment to form Sony Pictures Entertainment. A controversial purchase till this day, even with Spider-Man in its suite of IP. According to Morita, this was Sony's entry into integration. He believed that in the future, if Sony could integrate their consumer electronics with consumer entertainment, they would be unbeatable. By the turn of the century, things began to change, not just for Sony, but for the whole of Japan. In March 1991, asset prices in Japan collapsed and the country would begin a period of stagnating growth. As Sony entered a new precarious chapter, there was a changing of hands as Akio Morita stepped down as CEO in 1989 to Noria Oga, then in 1999 to Nobuyuki Idei. The 2000s would be the most difficult time for Sony and the whole of Japan, for the lost decades had begun. From 1UP Media, this is Empires, episode 3 of a four-part series, Made in Japan. Next, in Empires, we'll continue Sony's trajectory to the highest point of its rise with the PlayStation before exploring the perceived fall of Sony's massive empire. Follow us so you won't miss out on episode 4 of our four-part series, Disconnected. Empires is a 1UP Media original, produced and edited by Guangjin, audio experience by Ethan Sam, and narrated by Peter Ng. A quick word on our reenactments and dramatizations. While we can't know exactly what they say, think, or feel at the moment, it is all based on research. Thank you for listening. <laughs>